Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, August 19th and Sunday, August 20th, 2023. Um, bear with me. I'm, uh, I think, over the COVID, but uh, as you can probably tell, I'm still a little hoarse, so uh, please bear with me tonight uh, if, if it's not the most pleasant-sounding experience you've ever had. Uh, let's get into it. There's a few anniversaries. On August 19th, 1745, an Iranian army under Nadir Shah de defeated a much larger Ottoman army at the Battle of Kars. Uh, this defeat, uh, this victory combined with the destruction of a second Ottoman army near Mosul by an Iranian army under Nadir's son, effectively brought the Ottoman-Persian War of 1743 to 1746 to an end by really wiping out the Ottoman offensive. That'll do it. Uh, although he began the war with big goals, for defeating the Ottomans. Nader, who was by this point ill and growing more paranoid uh, by the day about supposed internal threats, opted to settle the conflict with a restoration of Ottoman-Iranian borders as they had been at the fall of the Safavid dynasty a few decades earlier. Uh, on August 19th, 1953, this is the anniversary of the coup uh, that removed the UK-US-backed coup that removed Iranian Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh. Uh, there's a, I've got a piece about this at the website if you want to check it out. I don't want to go into a ton of detail because uh, many of you have probably heard a little bit about this coup, so there's not much reason to go into detail. Suffice to say, Mossadegh wanted to nationalize Iran's oil industry, and the Brits and the Americans decided uh, they didn't like that very much, and they were worried that he might be a closet commie, and so he had to go, and they made arrangements. There was certainly a movement within Iran uh, with the Shah and his military officers uh, wanting to get rid of Mossadegh. And so the U.S. and the U.K. piggybacked on that and made sure that Mossadegh was, in fact, removed from power. Again, you can read more about it at the website. On August 19, 1991, a group of Soviet leaders calling themselves the State Committee on the State of Emergency, that's a snappy name, undertook a coup and arrested President Mikhail Gorbachev. The whole thing fell apart three days later under pressure from the Soviet public, rallied by Russian President Boris Yeltsin in what may have been his last sober act uh, in public life, sorry. Uh, and as a result, uh, Yeltsin, of course, became effectively the most powerful person in the Soviet Union. This was such a, a cataclysmic failure for the coup plotters that it really led to or contributed at least to the collapse of the entire Soviet Union. Uh, on August 20th, give or take, it's a little bit murky, in the year 636, this is the anniversary of the Battle of Yarmouk, one of the most important battles in the early years, early decades uh, of the Arab expansion out of Arabia following Muhammad and the development of Islam and the unification of uh, the Arab tribes. When they moved out of the Arabian Peninsula, there were two superpowers regionally to deal with. One of them, of course, was the Persian Empire, and the other was the Roman Empire or Byzantine Empire, depending on uh, your point of view. This is still a little bit of a uh, gray area in terms of whether you call it the Romans or the Byzantines. Uh, regardless, the Yarmouk was a battle between the Byzantine, I'm going to go with Byzantine, uh, Byzantine army and the Arabs. It was a decisive victory for the Arabs that drove the Byzantines essentially out of the Levant. Uh, they still had garrisons in some of the major cities, but it broke 
really an army that the Byzantines couldn't afford to have broken. Uh, and the Arabs had relatively free reign from that point on to conquer Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, uh, etc., and even move into Egypt, although the, the Byzantines did put up a bit of a fight there uh, unsuccessfully. Um, on August 20th, 1988, a ceasefire brought the nearly eight-year-long Iran-Iraq war to an end. The war cost hundreds of thousands of lives and included some of the most appalling war crimes of the 20th century, all to achieve essentially a restoration of the pre-war status quo, minus, of course, all the casualties. Uh, on to the news in the Middle East and Syria. Hundreds of people turned out on Sunday across southern Syria's Soweto province to continue anti-government protests related to rising prices and a failing economy. The demonstrations have now progressed to a general strike in the predominantly Druze province, which local media characterized as unprecedented since the start of the Syrian civil war back in two, 2011. Small protests have also spread to neighboring Dara province, which was, of course, the seat of the protests that sparked that war. Uh, these protests were prompted in part by the Syrian government's decision to cut fuel sub subsidies, adding to the country's cost of living crisis. In Lebanon, according to Hezbollah, a suspect in last month's bombing near the Sayyidah Zainab shrine, a shrine excuse me, in Syria, which we covered in the newsletter, jumped out the window of a residential building in southern Beirut to his death on Friday while being pursued by Hezbollah fighters. It was all, I'm sure, very simple and believable. Leaving the veracity of the story aside, I think what's really notable here is the complete absence of Lebanese security forces from any part of it. Hezbollah learned that this person had entered the country and pursued him on its own through Friday's climax. This seems like a job that would have been better handled or more normally handled anyway by the police, but that would assume a functioning state, and Lebanon definitely does not have one of those these days. In Israel-Palestine, an apparent Palestinian gunman shot and killed two Israelis, a father and a son, in the West Bank village of Huara on Saturday. Israeli security forces undertook a manhunt for the shooter in the nearby city of Nablus, but I have not seen any, any indication as to whether they've been successful in tracking that person down. Uh, in Asia and Afghanistan, the Washington Post reports on the Taliban's first major infrastructure project. That's a quote since retaking control of Afghanistan. Uh, I'll read you the first few paragraphs of the piece. The morning sun was still rising over the shriveled wheat fields and the villagers were already worrying about another day without water. Rainwater stored in the village well would run out in 30 days, one farmer said nervously. The groundwater pumps gave nothing, complained another. The canals brimming decades ago with melted snow from the Hindu Kush now dry up by spring, said a third. This is all happening, by the way, in a city called Akcha in Af central Afghanistan. Uh, village chief, chief Mohammed Isfak. Ishfak, excuse me, threw his hands up. If everyone could hold out for two more years, he said, then the excavators and engineers, hundreds of them already working over the horizon, would arrive. If we only had that water, Ishfak said, everything will be solved. Uh, end quote. Two years after its takeover of Afghanistan, the Taliban is overseeing its first major infrastructure project, the 115-mile Koshtepa Canal, designed to divert 20% of the water from the Amurdaria River across the parched plains of northern Afghanistan. Uh, now, this is me again. The canal could, in theory, create a massive amount of newly arable land, but there are huge concerns as to whether the Taliban has the capability, financial or technical, to construct and maintain it properly. And whether it does or not, the diversion of that much water out of the Amudarya is inevitably going to cause tension with the governments of Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, uh, which both lie downstream.
Uh, in Pakistan, a bus carrying construction workers to a work site near the Afghan border in Pakistan's Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province struck an improvised explosive device on Sunday, killing at least 11 people. There's been no claim of responsibility, but given the location, the Pakistani Taliban seems the likely culprit. In Thailand, new polling paints a grim picture for that country's emerging governing coalition. A survey from Thailand's National Institute of Development Administration finds that 64% of respondents oppose what looks like an alliance between the Phu Thai Party and the Thai military. Partly, this might have to do with Phu Thai's promise made prior to the election in May that it would not ally with the military or military-backed parties in any effort to form a government. The Thai military designed the country's political system to give itself a veto over the government formation process. So realistically, any party would have to compromise in this regard, but clearly the Thai public is not fond of that. Uh, in China, the Chinese military began a round of exercises near Taiwan on Saturday that it appeared to characterize as a response to Taiwanese Vice President William Lai ching recent stopovers in the United States. Taiwanese and U.S. officials condemned the exercises, with Taipei accusing Beijing of election interference, given that Lai is a candidate and probably the favorite in next year's presidential race. That said, these drills seem like a relatively subdued response compared with China's reactions to similar U.S.-Taiwan interactions over the past couple of years. In Afghanistan and Sudan, fighting between the Sudanese military and the Sudan People's Liberation Movement North rebel faction in and around Kadukli, the capital of South Sudan's South Kordofan state, has reportedly displaced thousands of people uh, over the past couple of months. Uh, the SPLMN, which is trying to take advantage of the military's ongoing conflict with the Rapid Support Forces, has, according to local residents, seized at least 10 military bases in the province since June and now controls about 60% of South Kordofan. Many of the displaced have headed for neighboring North Kordofan State, which has been the scene of heavy fighting between the military and RSF, but is still apparently viewed as the safer place to be. The Guardian is reporting that RSF representatives have been meeting with members of both the SPLMN and the Sudan Liberation Army, which has been active in Darfur and is currently based in Libya, in Ethiopia in recent weeks, uh, though there's no indication what they're discussing or whether they have made any headway. In Libya, uh, the, that country's central bank is now a single institution again, more than nine years after it split into eastern and western branches amid Libya's civil war. The bank's governor, Sadiq al-Kabir, announced the reunification on Sunday in Tripoli. Bringing state finances back together isn't going to heal Libya's larger political divide on its own, but it could prove to be a significant step toward overall unification if it reduces tensions over, say, the distribution of oil revenue. In Mali, unspecified gunmen attacked a village in central Mali's Mopti region on Friday, killing at least 23 people and looting stores and cattle. There's been no claim of responsibility, but presumably the attackers were jihadists of some variety. Elsewhere, al-Qaeda fighters have reportedly blockaded the city of Timbuktu after the arrival of a Malian military detachment accompanied by foreign mercenaries, Russians most likely. Uh, the blockade has been affecting shipments of food into the city. In Burkina Faso, an apparent jihadist attack in that country's center-east region on Saturday uh, left at least five police officers dead. 
According to Burkina Bay officials, their forces then mounted a counterattack that killed over 40 of the original attackers. In Niger, military leaders from the economic community of West African states remaining members wrapped up their two-day What to Do About Niger summit in Ghana on Friday, having supposedly agreed on a D-Day for a military incursion to oust Niger's junta and restore its former civilian government. While that might sound ominous, there's no indication when this supposed point of no return will be reached, assuming that there is in fact such a point and this isn't just an empty threat. There's also no indication that ECOWAS's supposed standby force is anywhere close to being ready to invade, despite assurances from the bloc that it could move at any time. Nevertheless, there were indications over the weekend that the Nigerian junta is, after three weeks of mostly intransigence, suddenly interested in finding a diplomatic accord with ECOWAS. For starters, the junta finally received an ECOWAS delegation, allowing it to meet not just with junta boss Abdurrahman Tiani, but also with ousted President Mohamed Bazoum. Uh, the Junta's civilian prime minister, Ali Lamin Zain, uh, then told the New York Times that, quote, nothing will happen, end quote, to Bazoum, despite the Junta's stated intention to put him on trial. This seems like an attempt to pacify ECOWAS members concerned about his fate. Uh, he also said that he sees, Zane also said, I should say, uh, that he sees no indication that the junta is planning to kick Western military forces out of the country and throw in with Russia and or the Wagner Group, which is another effort at pacifying international tensions. To be clear, Zane probably does not speak for the junta, though the junta may be speaking through him. Uh, and f also, Tiani delivered a televised address on Saturday in which he proposed a three-year transition back to civilian rule while also condemning ECOWAS for its sanctions and its uh, alleged invasion plan. Three years is going to be one year too long for ECOWAS, which in previous cases in Mali and Burkina Faso has insisted on two-year transitions. But Tiani may have offered it as the basis uh, for negotiations, which would at least delay any intervention and could allow him to stall for time before agreeing to a quote-unquote two-year transition that winds up being more like three years or, you know, a little bit more at least than two years once you factor in all the back and forth. Uh, in Europe, uh, in Russia, according to Russian authorities, Ukrainian drones attacked targets in Russia's Belgorod, Kursk, and Rostov oblasts on Sunday while they brought, another, they brought down another drone near Moscow and briefly shut down that city's uh, Domodedova uh, and Vnukova, sorry, my Russian is very rusty, uh, airports. Uh, five people were re reportedly injured in Kursk, but otherwise there's no indication that any of the attempted strikes had any effect. Uh, elsewhere, Russia's Luna 25 lunar rover, the subject of the Russian space program's first lunar space mission since the then-Soviet program made one in 1976, has apparently crashed into the moon after entering an unstable orbit. The probe was aiming to be the first ever to explore the moon's south pole, where it is believed there may be water deposits that could be of use in future missions. An Indian probe is also currently attempting to achieve that feat and may attempt a landing within the next few days. Uh, in Ukraine, a Russian missile strike on the Ukrainian city of Chernihiv on Saturday killed at least seven people and left at least 144 others wounded, according to Ukrainian officials. The strike apparently hit a central commercial square in the city. 
Uh, Having received the green light from Washington, the governments of Denmark and the Netherlands over the weekend pledged to deliver an unspecified number of F-16s to the Ukrainian military. Danish Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen pledged 19 F-16s in total over the next three years, with the first six set to arrive around late December, eight more next year, and five in 2024. The Netherlands has 42 F-16s in its arsenal, but its government has yet to decide how many to offer or how quickly to deliver them. It's still going to take months for the Ukrainians to train on flying and maintaining the aircraft, and these numbers are too small to make much of a difference in the war anyway but Kiev is undoubtedly hoping that other F-16 operators will follow suit and offer their planes as well. In the Americas, in Ecuador, there are two presidential elections in the Americas on Sunday. In Ecuador, the first round of that country's snap election is almost certain to end inconclusively, as no candidate has polled anywhere near the 50% milestone that would obviate the need for a runoff. Results are only just starting to come in as I recorded this, but Luisa Gonzalez is leading so far, uh, which is consistent uh, with pre-election polling. Uh, tensions were high uh, following the assassination of candidate Fernando Villavicencio earlier this month, uh, but the day seems to have passed fairly peacefully, albeit with reports of attempted cyber attacks on the country's electoral systems. In Guatemala, the second of those two elections is Guatemala's runoff, in which polling strongly suggests that Bernardo Arevalo will defeat first-round winner Sandra Torres. Arevalo's anti-corruption message has already seen Guatemalan authorities attempt to disqualify him and dissolve his party following his surprise runner-up finish in the first round, so there is some potential for shenanigans this time around. And in the United States, finally, uh, writing for The Nation, the Quincy Institute's Sarang Shador looks ahead to this week's BRICS summit and the bloc's future plans. I'll read you a couple of paragraphs of his piece. Uh, on August 22nd, South Africa will host the next BRICS summit, bringing together leaders from Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa at a time of acute tensions between the United States and its great power rivals, China and Russia. But another context for the meeting is the increased salience of the global south, most sharply revealed by the nuanced reactions in Asia, Africa, and Latin America to the Ukraine war. The multiple failures of the U.S.-led world order to substantially support two core requirements of global south states, economic development and safeguarding sovereignty, are creating a demand for alternative structures for ordering the world. The BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization are two major responses to these failures. They are bringing the East and the South together in rooms in which Washington and its core allies are not exactly welcome even when they invite themselves. BRICS is often talked about in one of two ways. Some observers dismiss its relevance, even calling for its dissolution. Others take a romantic view of of the BRICS being a revival of the hoary days of Southern solidarity, Bandung in the 1950s or the 1970s New International Economic Order. Neither is an accurate picture of what is really happening. The current moment appears to be the next fork in the road for BRICS after its foundational years of 2009-2010 and the creation of its development finance entity, the New Development Bank, 
bag in 2015. Two key items on the are on the August summit agenda. First, finding a way to trade and invest with one another by circumventing the use of the U.S. dollar. And second, admitting new states to the club. Uh, click through and uh, read the whole piece. Uh, it's an interesting preview. Uh, and on that note, uh, that's all for us tonight and this weekend. Hope you had a good one. Uh, thanks, as always, for reading and or listening to the newsletter. And thanks to those of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers, especially if you are a paid foreign exchanges subscriber. And if you're not, please consider making the jump and doing that uh, today. Why not? Why not today? Uh, as you're listening to this, uh, we could definitely use your support uh, to help keep the newsletter going and, and hopefully help uh, keep it growing and, and developing. Uh, until next time. Take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.